Gospel of John, uh, chapter 11. We're looking at 38, John 11, 38 through 44 this morning. John 38, 11, 38 through 44. Great climax of the seventh sign uh, here in the book of John, the raising of Lazarus. Let me remind you, before we read this, this is God's good and kind and gracious word that he has given to you, and it is for you this morning, for your encouragement in the gospel. So give attention to it. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for him to help us understand his word. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you again for giving us your word that we might have life, the same life that you gave to Lazarus back in the day. We we pray that you would raise us all to new life as well through the finished work of Jesus Christ who calls us from our sin and death into new life. Father, I pray that we would all this morning be found in resurrection hope with Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Some years ago, I heard a story about four southern women, four elderly southern women who lived uh, together in a nursing home. And they got to be such good friends that they made a pact uh, among one another. Knowing that their end was near for each of them, they decided and agreed that if any of them were to die, that the other three would go in and clean the body prior to anyone else coming. You think, well, that's a morbid way to start a sermon. Well, yes, it is. But there's something really important about what those women understood about death. They understood that death is a thief. And that death is the thief of dignity. These were women that lived their lives, appropriately or inappropriately, I don't know, understanding something about human worth and human dignity that is given to all of us because we are made in the image of God. And sin, as pervasive as it is in our lives, does not take that dignity from us. But the final blow of sin is death. And there is a lot of indignity in death. And these women understood that they, in their friend's death, would be able to give her a modicum of dignity That was rightfully hers. In death, we see human fragility. We see weakness, and it's on full display. And it's on display in this passage 
for us today. And we need to look at that fragility in order for us to also see the great strength of our Lord, the strength that he has for us. Once again, this is the seventh sign in the book of John, and we've taken a couple weeks to look at this seventh sign. And the reason why John wrote these signs down, we're told, in, uh, in, at the end of chapter 20, John says, I have written down these things. There's many other things he could have written about, but these seven things in particular that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life through faith in him. He has given us this, that we might have all the proof that we need that Jesus is God in the flesh and we should believe in him. This teaches us also how we can be saved from our own death, how, how we, through Jesus Christ, can overcome the indignity of sin and death in our own lives and how Jesus actually overcomes our weakness and our sin. I want to look at this passage in three ways this morning. First of all, we're going to see Jesus at the tomb. And you see this in verses 38 through 40. Secondly, we're going to see Jesus in prayer in verses 41 and 42. And then finally, we're going to see Jesus in control in verses 43 and 44. First of all, Jesus at the tomb in verses 38 through 40. Look there at what it says. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. For those of you that weren't here last week, I kind of did a deep dive on what it means that Jesus was deeply moved. It's not merely that he was moved to certain emotions. He was moved to a particular emotion. And that word means that he was moved to anger. As Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb, he is angry. And we find that shocking because we don't think of anger as an emotion that you would experience at a funeral like this. This was the funeral of his friend. He should be sad. And yet, Jesus is not merely Lazarus' friend. He is also his God. And he understands the tragedy of what he's doing. He's going to the tomb, and at the tomb, he is angry. Why is he angry? He's angry because the tomb is the physical representation of what sin actually is. The tomb is the end. It's the final part, uh, the final point of life. It's the place where all good things are laid to rest forever and ever and ever. And Jesus is angry at the tomb. But I want you to realize again, this is only a week from when Jesus is going to go and hang on the cross not just for Lazarus' sin, but for the sins of everyone who believes in Jesus, who are called according to God's purposes. He is going to the cross in one week, and Jesus must surely be thinking about that reality, that he is going to Lazarus' tomb, and he is going to call Lazarus out of that tomb. But he also will have to go and face death because of sin. And so Jesus is angry at sin Look at what Jesus says when he gets there. He is angry and he commands. He says, take away the stone, remove the stone. Now at this point, there must have been some confusion because after four days, you do not remove the stone of a tomb. Now maybe they thought, well, maybe he's going inside of the tomb and that's what he's going to do. Uh, and by doing that, he would have made himself ritually unclean. And there's lots of things that are going on involved with that. But, but So they don't really know what Jesus is doing. But Jesus commands, take 
away the stone. And I want you to realize something. Uh, again, the stone is the physical, rep- or I'm sorry, the tomb is the physical representation of sin. And you have to remember sin's entrance into the world. And what happened whenever sin entered the world? What did Adam and Eve immediately do? What did they immediately come uh, to understand about themselves? They understood that they were naked and they were ashamed. And what did they do? They covered themselves. So now in, in this day, Jesus comes to the tomb and what is covering the ultimate picture of sin and death is a stone, not just a little fig leaf, but a massive stone. And that's what we try to do with sin. We try to cover over our sin. We try to cover over all of the little bits and pieces of our lives that we are embarrassed by that induce shame, that bring shame upon us. And in the final day of our death, we will be put in a coffin and covered in a hermetically sealed box as a way to try to cover over the reality of human weakness and human frailty. Jesus comes and he says, remove the stone, take it away, expose Lazarus for who he is. And Martha understood that. Because what does Martha say? Martha says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days. What's Martha's concern? Once again, Martha has forgotten her place. This is classic Martha. We should all really like Martha because this is exactly what we're like. We, we want to tell Jesus what to do and remind him of things that he already knows. But, but Lord, it's going to stink. Don't expose Lazarus. That's what she's saying. But she's saying more than that because this is her dear brother. And this would have been the stench of her family as well that would have been wafting out of the cave. Martha is essentially telling Jesus, don't remove the stone because because I don't want everyone to understand that my family is like that. That my family is weak and frail. That my family can't actually keep themselves alive. It's a silly thing, but we do the same thing every single day. We present to the world that we are better than we actually are. We present to the world that we have strength in and of ourselves to keep ourselves going, that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That is the stench of death all over us, and yet we try to cover ourselves with that reality, and that's exactly what Martha is doing right now. She's telling Jesus, don't remove, don't, I don't want people to smell my brother. I don't want people to know his weakness, which is really my weakness. We don't want people to know what we're really like. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, remove the stone. Take it away. Let everyone smell the stench of death. Because if you don't smell the stench of death, if you don't smell just how terrible it is, then you won't also see the glory of life that will come in a moment. Jesus says, remove the stone. Here's what I want you to understand. This shows us that Jesus did not come to play nice with our sin. He did not come to play nice with our brokenness and our shame. Coming to Jesus Christ means coming and admitting that you are just like Lazarus in the grave and you stink. You have the smell of death and sin all over you. And it is shameful We live in a world that tries to to act like shame isn't a big deal, but shame is such a big deal. I think shame is part of God's 
a great gift to us to see the reality of our sin. Not always. There's sometimes where shame uh, is is part of the fall. It's it's something that happens to us because uh, we live in a broken world, and there are things that induce shame that should not induce shame. But there are times, and most of the time, we feel shame because we are sinners who should feel shame before our holy and righteous God. And Jesus has come to say, remove the stone, expose all of those things. I want you to know exactly what Lazarus is. And he says, I want you to know exactly what you are as well. Apart from Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. But here's the great thing, that as Jesus uncovers your shame, if he doesn't uncover who you really are, then he isn't also going to do the work inside of you to bring about life. What if they never removed the stone from Lazarus' tomb? (laughs) And Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. There he would have been. Or Lazarus raised from the dead, come He would have been in the tomb still. Jesus comes to remove the stone so that Lazarus can come all the way out. That's the first thing that we see. We see Jesus at the tomb commanding that the stone be removed. Secondly, we see Jesus in prayer. And this is fascinating. Um, The Lord's Prayer is the model prayer that Jesus gives to his saints. Um, He teaches us how to pray in that prayer. I would say that this is not a model prayer (laughs) Um, because Jesus isn't praying here for himself and for his benefit. He actually tells you that. He says, Lord, our Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they might believe that you sent me. He is praying not for his benefit, but for our benefit. Jesus, as he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he doesn't, again, enter into the tomb. He doesn't go and wave any kind of herbs or spices over him. He doesn't say any magic incantations. He doesn't do anything like that. But he goes and he prays. He simply prays to God the Father. And this is an interesting posture that he takes. In, um, in, uh, in the ancient days, the normal posture for prayer Uh, would have been on your face, would have been on your knees. It would have been with your head bowed low. We do that also. We pray with the posture of our heads bowed. But how does Jesus pray? Jesus prays with a prayer of confidence. He doesn't lower his head. He lifts up his eyes to the heavens to see God, his Father, with his eyes through the Spirit, in confidence to look at his Father and say, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. It's interesting. Jesus says, you've heard me. Apparently, Jesus has been praying for Lazarus this whole time. And that's the way that prayer should work. Paul says that we should pray at all times without ceasing. And Jesus apparently was modeling that for us. Praying to his father. Asking for his father to raise Lazarus from the dead. He has been praying and then he says, I, know, I knew that you always hear me. He wants them to know that his father is the one who sent him into the world. See, Jesus doesn't just want the people to know him and who he is. He wants the people to really know how great his father is. Our prayer, or, okay, so what's the truth? The, the truth is, and Jesus wants the people to know the truth, that 
the Father sent the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father. Jesus could have raised him by himself. Why could he have done that? Because he's God. The same power that is at work in creation, giving life, is the work that Jesus had. Jesus could have simply raised Lazarus from the dead. But this reveals what Jesus was really all about. And our prayer life does that. What does Jesus really value? Jesus values the glory of God the Father over everything else in the world. Because Jesus doesn't merely want to get credit for himself. This is mind-boggling. This is is the kind of stuff that when you start thinking about this, your head kind of scrambles up because you you just don't know what to think about. Jesus, who is God, wanted to glorify God his Father and not take credit for himself, but get credit to God. How does that work in a trinity? I don't know, but that's what we're told here. He prays to the Father that the Father might be glorified by giving life to Lazarus. He wants everyone to know that God the Father is at work in the world. And He is working. He has been working. And even at this point, in this stage, when Lazarus has been dead for four days, that God the Father is still working. Jesus came to fulfill a mission. In Ephesians chapter 1, you're told there that God the Father planned a redemption for His people. And then right after you're told that God the Father planned the redemption, you're told that God planned, God the Father planned to redeem through God the Son. And in Jesus Christ, He came to accomplish the mission that the Father planned. Jesus is not winging it at this point. He is not making things up as He goes along. But I want you to understand something, that Jesus is following the script that has been written for Him. He has the power to wing it if he wants to. But he submits to the Father for the Father to receive the glory. That's what he values. I want you to understand something. That Jesus is submitting to the Father in the midst of all of these emotions that he's feeling. All of the pain that he's gone through. Remember, we just read that Jesus wept. Jesus weeps for his friend. He experiences the pain of death. And that too was written for him as a script to follow. All of it is part of it. Which means also then, if Jesus is following this script, then your pain that you are experiencing this morning, the suffering that you are going through, the big questions, why Lord, why? All of those things are part of the plan of God. And if Jesus had to walk through suffering, and He is so much greater than us, won't we walk through suffering as well? And that should be a comfort to you. That the struggles that you're going through are all part of the plan of God. He has not forgotten you. He has not left you. Lazarus, four days in the grave, God has not forgotten. He has not left him. His presence is there with Him. His presence is here with you as well. Well, what should you pray for? What should you value in your life? The same thing Jesus valued, that the glory of God would go forth. That needs to be the content of our prayer. Father, glorify Yourself in our midst. 
Glorify yourself even in the pain and the suffering, even as we struggle. Father, glorify yourself. And then finally here, you see Jesus in control in verses 43 and 44. Um, I don't know if you like watching college football. Um, I do. I used to like watching um, college game day, and then we had children. Um, and there's no way to watch college game day with children. Um, so, I, But the one thing about college day, game day that you can, uh, you can bet on is that at least once, maybe twice an hour through the three-hour broadcast, they are going to do what's called human interest stories. All right, so they got to fill space for three hours, and they got to keep people watching. And you know what people really like to watch? They really like to watch how people overcome adversity. They really like to watch stories about people doing things that we really want people to do, overcoming obstacles, overcoming adversity, pulling yourselves out and doing all those things. And so once or twice an hour, college game day, the people at ESPN pay reporters to go out and produce these wonderfully produced pieces simply to get grown men to cry on Saturday morning prior to watching football. It's the most amazing thing. We love human interest story. We love the drama of what's happening in the lives of other people, and we try to connect ourselves to those things. Notice the human interest story that you have here. I mean, this is the kind of story that ESPN could really sell for months and months and months. What did Lazarus experience when he came out of the tomb? What was going on for those four days? What was it like for him to, to have the sun shining in his face? All of those various things. And how many of those questions that you have are answered in these verses? Zero. Absolutely none. Why is that? Because John does not care one bit about what Lazarus was experiencing in this moment. He wants the focus to be not on the one who received life, but the one who gave life. And look at this focus. Look at what he says, verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. It's so simple. Lazarus, come out. We don't need to lose sight of the most important thing in the midst of this. As fascinating, fascinating as it would be to hear Lazarus' side of the story, you don't get it anywhere. All you see is the God-man standing outside of the tomb calling for the dead man to come out. And what does he do? He immediately obeys. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. So you get this picture. This is the way that, that Jewish people would bury their loved ones. They would take them. They would cover them in these cloths. They would put spices all over their body in order to hide the stench for a time, they would do all of these various things. And somehow or another, with his hands and his feet bound, Lazarus comes out. Again, we're not told all of the details of how all of that happened. But here's what we see, that Jesus is in control over death itself. Um, a few years ago, I was talking to a man here at this church who had a view of God, and he said, you know, I, I know that y'all believe that God is in control. Yeah, 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 but 
But is God really in control of everything in this world? And he, he tried to illustrate what he, what he was trying to say. He was like, look, I, I think God is too important, too big to really be in control of every little single molecule of the world. And I remembered this quote from R.C. Sproul where he says, if there's one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Here's what I want you to see, that Jesus at the tomb is Jesus in control and sovereignly in control over every single little tiny molecule of this world. There's nothing that catches him off guard, nothing that catches him by surprise. Jesus is in control. And because he is in control this morning, we have reason to hope. We have reason to believe that all of his promises that he has given to his people will come to pass. What are those promises that that even in death we will have life? You see a picture of that here Jesus is over every single little molecule of Lazarus' body. That over those four days as his body and the cells began to break down and decompose and all of those things that happened in an instant, Jesus put them back together and made them whole. Here's what we see, that Jesus is in control and he commands life and death itself. Look at what Jesus says at the very end. This is what Jesus came to do. He says, unbind him and let him go. That's what Jesus came to do for you and me. To loose us from our sins, to set us free from our sins. He literally is saying, let him free. Set him free. That's what Jesus came to do for all of us. He came to remove the rags of your death from you. Your sin is your death. And Jesus stands before you now and he says, unbind him or her. Let him free. Sin demands death. Sin demands it. Well, where is Lazarus's death? Um, They believe, and this is really interesting, I like studying about archaeology, especially in the Middle East and they believe that in Bethany, this area two miles, um, uh, two miles uh, to the is it to the west of Jerusalem? I can't remember now. But in this town where Lazarus lived, uh, they found one of these tombs, and they found what are called ossuary boxes, where uh, they would take the bones of the deceased and put them in these boxes, and they would carve their names in them. And one of these uh, one of these tombs, they found boxes with the name of Mary and Martha. And Eleazar. Eleazar is Lazarus. Lazarus is the nickname for Eleazar, the one whom God helps. And on this one Lazarus's box, it says, they think, twice dead. Isn't that an amazing thing? It's, it doesn't really matter if that's what it says or any of those things. The reality is, is that today Lazarus is seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places He is alive, truly alive, more alive than you and I are today. Because in Christ, Jesus raised him from the dead. But also, we see here that Jesus pays the price 
for Lazarus's sins. And he also pays the price for our sins. Again, in a week, he's going to go to the cross to pay for the death that Lazarus deserves, to pay for the death that you and I deserve as well. What should we do? We should respond to him in faith. Give him our lives because he says, take away the stone, unbind him, let him go. Through faith in Jesus, you have been set free. Believe on him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today. And we pray that we would all be set free from our sin and death and be found in him. We thank you for illustrating your great power through, you, through uh, Lazarus and his death. And I pray that all of us would have confidence in Christ to also give us life. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.